This uh, title of this sermon today is Jesus Impacted Individuals Part 3, and we're going to focus on a man named Saul of Tarsus, also known as the Apostle Paul. Before he was a believer, he was known as Saul. Later on, he took on a new name that reflected his new nature in Jesus Christ. We started this three-part uh, sermon with the demoniac, the man who was possessed by many demons who had been forced into a graveyard because he was uh, insane. He was cutting himself. He was screaming in agony all the time. They would try to chain him, and he would break through the chains, and he was an outcast. He was all but forgotten by society, but yet Jesus went his way. He wasn't forgotten about by Jesus. Jesus knew exactly who he was, knew exactly where he was, and the Bible teaches us that Jesus went to the cemetery where that man was. He came, and Jesus cast those demons out, and that man accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior. Jesus dramatically impacted his life. The Bible teaches us that the man who was once cutting himself, once breaking through chains, once screaming in agony, living in the graveyard naked, after Jesus encountered him, he was clothed and in his right mind. That's the kind of impact that Jesus has on individuals. And then we saw last week where we talked about the woman at the well. She was a woman who had lived a very sinful life, a woman who had been ridiculed by her community, a woman who didn't want to be around people because of the ridicule so much that she was willing to go to the well at the hottest part of the day to draw water. And Jesus told his disciples, I have to go through Samaria. And when he went through Samaria, he went exactly where that woman was going to be. He told her who he was and that he could give her water that would cause her to never thirst again. And she said, I want that water. And he changed her life that day. He gave her hope. He gave her purpose. He gave her joy. He gave her a family. Well, today we're going to talk about Saul of Tarsus. We're going to find out what kind of man Saul was before his salvation. We're going to find out what kind of man he was after. And the things that led up to him becoming the greatest missionary that our world has ever seen. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn in them to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. And we're going to start reading there in verse 1. Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Give you just a moment to find your places there. When you found your place, you may stand to your feet as we honor God's Word. At Pole Creek, Scripture is our number one core value. It's our foundation. We honor the Word of God because it's objective truth. It's absolute truth. It never changes. All right. So beginning in verse 1 of Acts chapter 9, the Bible says this. Now Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, which was a first century term for Christians, he might bring them as a prisoner to Jerusalem. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days. And he did not eat or drink. Let's pray. God, we entrust this sermon into your hands. We entrust, God, uh, the, the changing of our hearts into your hands. 
Lord, as many of us, including me, we fight the temptation to become calloused. We fight the temptation to become apathetic. And Lord, as we live within a community of hurting people, Lord, help us not to be complacent. Help us, Lord, not to just get used to people's pain. But help us, God, to hurt for others, to have empathy. And Lord, help us to realize that the only way to change their lives is through the gospel. And that, Lord, as we love on our community, as we provide for the needs of our community, Lord, that you're going to give us opportunities to share and to speak into their lives. Lord, as you prompt us to invite people to church, God, help us to love those we're inviting in a special way. And God, just like the Apostle Paul, formerly known as Saul of Tarsus, Lord, we can know that you can save even those that we think is impossible. That you can save those who are in the darkest of sin, the very ones that we think there's no hope for, you're powerful enough to save. So God, help us not to doubt you. Help us to entrust the lost people in our community into your hands as we obey and go and reach them. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So like I said, I want us to look at three different things, three different steps really, in Paul's life that led him from being a murderer of Christians to the greatest missionary the world has ever known. I want to share a story with you in an event that took place back in 1956. Many of you have probably watched the movie, The End of the Spear. And that story is based on factual events of five missionaries who went to Ecuador. And in Ecuador, there was a tribe called the Wadani tribe. And they were very secluded and a reclusive tribe. They were also known as savages. They had a history of violently harming people who would try to make contact with their tribe. Now, albeit their tribe had no access to the gospel. There had been no ability for any Christians to really penetrate into that tribe and establish a church or to try to help those people come to know Christ. Well, these five missionaries were called to the Wadani tribe. And they found a, a sandbar in the river where they could land a, a prop plane. And they decided they were going to fly in and make contact. And they had been trying to fly over and drop um, food and different things uh, in the weeks uh, preceding when they would actually land there in their village to try to show them that they were there to love on them and they were, they were there to help them. And when they finally landed, uh, the story goes that they were uh, violently attacked. They were killed with spears and machetes, all five of the missionaries. And uh, that tribe was known for that. That was a philosophy in their culture that you kill or be killed, and that's why they did that. Well, a few years later, God called one of the wives of one of the five missionaries and also one of the sisters of one of the five missionaries to go back into the Wadani tribe to make contact with them and try to, to break through and share the gospel with them so that they might come to know Jesus. And the story goes that it affected the tribesmen so much that these women whose husbands had been murdered by them loved that tribe so much that they were willing to come back for their own good and for their own benefit, to share with them this story about the one true God. And there was one particular tribesman, he was actually one of the men who killed one of the five missionaries. His name was Minkai. And Minkai came to know Jesus Christ because of the faithfulness of that wife and of that sister. And Minkai now says, he's still living today, he now says that he prays that many people would come to know the trail that God has made for them. 
And he also says that he believes that the blood of Jesus has dripped and made a path for us to walk on. He, he's a believer now, and he knows Christ. And he's now praying that more people would come to Jesus. Now, there's a dramatic change that's taken place here. This man goes from being godless, from being a murderer, to now praying that more people would come to faith in Jesus. And now as we read this story about the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, we're finding out that he was very similar. That he was a man who had a mission to annihilate Christianity. So the first thing that I want us to see in this process, in these steps that God took Paul through to bring him from a murderer to the greatest missionary that ever lived, number one is the impact of salvation. The impact of salvation. Now in verses 1 through 9 of Acts chapter 9, we see Saul's conversion experience. Now in verses 1 and 2, we really get the objective of Saul's life. The objective, the thing that was motivating Saul to continue moving forward in what he believed. Verse 1, now Saul was still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. In other words, he hated Christians so much, he sought to annihilate Christianity from the face of the earth, and he would go to the high priest, those high-ranking religious officials of the Jewish faith who were in Jerusalem and said, I want permission from you to travel to Damascus. And when I get to Damascus, I want permission from you that says that if I find anyone practicing Christianity and following this man named Jesus, I want permission to imprison them and even kill them if I need to. And the high priest was glad to sign off on that. They saw Christianity as a cult. They saw it as an infringement on Jewish traditions. And they even, in many cases, saw it as blasphemy. Because the premise of Christianity is that Jesus is God. And the Jews saw that that was blasphemy against who they considered the one true God. Well, this was the kind of person that Saul of Tarsus was. And this was his motivation. His hatred for Jesus Christ and his hatred for Christians drove him to continue in this way. It's important for us to fully grasp a few things about Saul of Tarsus. Number one, you're going to find in Acts 22... You don't have to turn there, but he was a very well-educated man. He had been educated by a Pharisee doctor of Jewish law known as Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel was one of these well-known Jewish experts in Jewish law and Old Testament law. He was the man that you wanted to be educated by if you wanted prominence and respect in the Jewish faith. This was the Paul we're dealing with here. He himself was a widely respected Pharisee. He oversaw the murder of Stephen, one of the first deacons. And you find that story just a few chapters before Acts chapter 9 in Acts chapter 7. And many believe that the stoning and murder of Stephen, who was a Christian who preached the gospel, ignited a great persecution against Christians in this part of the world. And Paul was really feeding off of the frenzy that followed after Stephen's death. In other words, the Jews and the Pharisees felt liberated. They killed their first Christian, and it was celebrated. Now let's go kill more. 
And the Bible even teaches that there was a great diaspora. And what that is is, is that the, the, the Jewish Christians who were living in Jerusalem were so heavily persecuted during this time that they left Jerusalem. They went into Damascus. They went into parts of Palestine. They, they got away from Jerusalem because the heat was so hot in Jerusalem against Christianity. And Paul was at the forefront of that movement to annihilate the Christians. And then we know that he requested permission from the high priest to travel a 200-mile road to the city of Damascus to persecute the Christians that he found along his way. Now, in Acts chapter 8, you're going to find that Paul's practice was is that when he would get permission and he would go into a village or a town, that he would go house to house to house, dragging Christians out of their homes, kicking and screaming and imprisoning them. It didn't matter if it was women, children, men. It didn't matter. He was set to annihilate the Christian faith. Now, verses 3 and 4 begin to get into the encounter that Saul of Tarsus had with Jesus. Now, as he's walking on the road to Damascus, it says that this great bright light blinded him and he fell to the ground. And then Jesus himself begins to speak to Saul of Tarsus. We see that in verse 3. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him, falling to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. Now, isn't it interesting that Jesus, when he encounters Saul of Tarsus, he doesn't say, why are you persecuting them? Why are you persecuting my people? Why are you persecuting Christians? He says, why are you persecuting me? Did you know that as a believer, we are a part of the body of Christ? And when we hurt and when we suffer, it hurts our Lord. It affects our Lord. And what Jesus was saying there is, Saul, when you hurt Christians, when you afflict my people, it hurts me. When you persecute them, you are persecuting me. You can't persecute the God of heaven or you can't persecute his people without persecuting him as well. And that's what he was communicating there to Paul. And Paul doesn't take very long to realize, whoa, this is God. Hey, this is the one I have been preaching against. This is the one I've been trying to rid from the face of the earth. And now he's face to face with Jesus Christ. Now, albeit Jesus had already died on the cross, resurrected from the dead, ascended to heaven, sitting at the right hand of God. So this is a post-ascension encounter that Paul is having with Jesus. But Jesus comes to him and is in a very real way present there at that moment speaking to Paul. Now, Paul doesn't argue with Jesus, does he? He doesn't say, no, I don't believe in you. I'm telling you, at that moment, he was saved. At that moment, he became a Christian. Now, we have this idea in the Christian world today that you have to pray a certain prayer to be saved, don't we? There's a lot of preachers who will preach. If you'll just say this prayer or say the sinner's prayer, then you're saved and you're good to go. Did you know there's nothing in the Bible that says that if you pray this prayer, then you'll be saved? It does say, though, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And here's how salvation works. I want you to see this. It's about the posture of your heart. It's nothing you work to do. It's the posture of your heart. In other words, I'm walking my way, my life. 
I'm going against or along with my own desires, my own will, my own whims. And one day the Holy Spirit comes my way and he says, Ben, you're a sinner. Jesus died for you and rose again. Will you trust him for your salvation? The moment I say, yes, Lord, the posture of my heart turns from myself, my will, my desires, my passions, and it turns to Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that I work to do that, but I'm saying the simple posture of my heart goes from me focused to Jesus focused. I say, yes, Jesus, and I'm saved. Now, the works follow. The Bible teaches us in James that faith without works is dead. Works don't save you. Works are a result of true salvation. And that's what we have to understand. And that's what salvation, it's not a prayer. It's not, I have to go to the altar to do it. It's not, I have to pray with a pastor. It's, yes, Jesus. I know I'm a sinner. I know you died for me and rose again. I trust you. You're saved. That's what happened to Paul. He didn't have to go to the church. He didn't have to pray the sinner's prayer. Praise be to God, he was saved on the road to Damascus. And from that moment, that moment that he encountered Jesus, his life was changed. It's the impact of salvation. We believe that salvation is not just some religious experience or it's not just some creed that we repeat or not just some thing that we do. But true salvation is where the old man becomes new, where we get a new heart. The Bible teaches us that we are a new creation in Christ when we come to know Jesus as our Savior. We're not what we used to be. The old things are passed away. Behold, all things are made new. And Paul experienced that firsthand. As he was traveling down the road to Damascus, a murderer and a Christian killer, midway somewhere on that road, he became a child of God. You say, Ben, how in the world can a murderer one moment be hating Christians and want to kill them, the next moment love them and be one themselves? It's the impact of salvation. It's the impact of the gospel. And that's what Impact Candler is all about. It's saying, hey, listen, we know there are people in our community who are living in sin, sin that is destroying their lives, sin that is taking them to places that we don't want them to go, causing them to, to indulge in drugs and indulge in sinful lifestyles. And, and they're trying to fulfill this emptiness within them because they're looking for the only one who can fulfill them. But here's what they need. They need somebody to come and tell them. They need somebody to intersect their life like Jesus did with Paul and say, hey, listen, I know you're living in sin. I know that your life is in shambles. I know that you're full of hate. But listen, there's a God who loves you and died for you and sent his son so that you can be saved. Will you trust him today? You say, Ben, there is absolutely no way that God will save so-and-so. There's no possible way. I'm just going to go ahead and mark that person off the list. Listen, Jesus is in the business of saving murderers. Did you know that? Jesus saves murderers. Jesus can save that one that you think he can never save. Don't ever doubt God. It's the impact of salvation. And that's where Saul of Tarsus came from. Now, let's just consider this. Let's say, yes, Saul saved, which he was. And now everybody's going to back off and say, all right, he's good. Let's go to someone else. What would have happened to Saul if someone hadn't have helped him into the next step? Now, that first step, that most important step is that he comes to Christ and is saved. But, but what's next? After, after we lead somebody to Jesus, let's say someone comes to Pole Creek and, and, and through their relationship with one of you guys, they come to know Jesus or they get saved in one of our services. Do we just say, yay, we celebrate and then that's it? 
Because listen, if they had done that to Saul, what would have happened there? Look at verse 8. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. Hey, if they had left him to himself, he would have been laying there on the side of the road in the middle of the desert, on the road to Damascus, blind, not knowing what to do or where to go, not having any food to eat, possibly dying or being beaten by uh, passerbyers or something like that. But thanks be to God, that's not the end of the story. And that leads us to the second step that God took Paul through. Number two is the impact of discipleship. If you're taking notes, write that down. Not only the impact of salvation, we can't stop when somebody gets saved. We have to bring them into the local church. We have to come alongside of them and disciple them and teach them what does it mean to be a Christian? What is the next step? What does God want from you now, now that you're his child? It's really sad, but there are some speculative statistics that we hear of. And the statistics are about how many church attenders are believed to be saved. And really, it's startling. Dr. Billy Graham, before he passed, once estimated the number of church members that are lost are 85%. While W.A. Criswell, one of the most well-respected pastors of First Baptist Church of Dallas, said, I would be surprised to see even 25% of my church members in heaven. Now, these numbers were from two giants of the faith. They're obviously eye-popping, jaw-dropping statistics. And if you just, let's say, take Billy Graham and W.A. Criswell's statistics and average them out, it would say that eight out of every ten church attenders don't know Christ. Now, I hope that's not the case at Pole Creek, but I can't see your heart. It's between you and God. Only you and God can know. But a way that we can prevent those statistics... The way that we can prevent people from just attending church perpetually and never knowing Jesus is discipleship. Because what discipleship is, is, okay, you've come to Christ. Now I'm going to come alongside of you. We're going to study the Bible together. We're going to hold each other accountable. I'm going to attest to and witness the fruit in your life. The Bible teaches us that those who know Christ should produce fruit. That if you're from God, if you know him then you will do the things that he does. You will show and reflect his character in your life. And those who claim to be Christians but yet have no fruit, they don't love, they, 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 they're cheaters, they're, they steal, they don't have any passion or desire for lost people, they don't have any passion for God's church or God's people, people who, who, who don't seem to, to have any connection to God whatsoever and yet they claim to be Christians, the Bible teaches that we're allowed to question that. People say, well, you're not supposed to judge. That's correct. We don't judge. But see, the Word of God has already placed judgment and passed judgment on these things. And when we essentially just communicate God's Word in a way that's loving, then what we're doing is we're not judging them. We're communicating a judgment that God has already placed upon them. And when we're faithful to do that, the Word of God, what it'll do is it will change their lives. And it will reveal to them that what you thought you were, you're not. Or at least... Something's not right. And discipleship would bring that to the surface. But what happens in a lot of our churches, and possibly Pole Creek's, we've been guilty of this possibly too, is that when someone's saved, we say, praise the Lord, they're saved, and then we're done. We just hope they stick around. We just hope they do what's right. But no one comes alongside of them and disciples them. And that's a problem. 
And that's what happened with Paul. Now listen, the other flip side is what happened to Paul. Someone came alongside of him and discipled him. Listen to verse 10 there in Acts chapter 9. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. Now, at this point, uh, Saul has been led down the road to Damascus. He's now entered the city of Damascus. And here in Damascus, there's this disciple named Ananias, a believer in Christ. And the Lord came to Ananias in a vision and said, Ananias, here I am, Lord, he replied. Verse 11, get up and go to the street called Straight, the Lord said to him, to the house of Judas and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he is praying there. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and he has authority here from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Ananias went and entered the house. He placed his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road you were traveling, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. At once, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some time, Immediately, he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. Aren't you glad that Ananias came by? Aren't you glad that they didn't just leave Paul blind by himself in that house? Because listen, if Ananias had told God no, I mean, he, and he tried to get out of it, all right, which kind of gives me some consolation because I tried to get out of some stuff too in my Christian walk. Ananias said, listen, this guy kills people like me. This guy puts people like me in jail. Are you sure, God? Yes, this man is going to take my name to kings, Gentiles, and Israelites. Go. So Ananias went. And if Ananias had not have gone, Paul would have been left in that house blind, not knowing what to do. But instead, a faithful man of God decided, I'm going to go and obey God. He's called me to this man named Saul, who has now accepted him. I'm going to pray over him so he can regain his sight. You know, discipleship is kind of like that. When you first get saved, you know about this much about the Christian walk. You know enough. You have the knowledge that Jesus died and rose again and that he saved you from your sin, but you have no idea what it means to be a Christian beyond that. And it's almost as though you are blind. It's almost as though you have a narrow, very singular vision of what Christianity is. And then as you walk through life, people come alongside of you and they teach you. And it broadens your vision and your understanding of what the faith is, of the depth of God's word and the truth of who God is. And that's exactly what Ananias did. He just simply obeyed God's command to go to this man named Saul, who was in his house praying, who was blind, lay his hand on him and pray over him. And did you see the result of the discipleship that took place? Verse 20. After Ananias did this, they baptized Saul. And it says in verse 20, immediately he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He is the Son of God. Now, what propelled Saul to go and preach Jesus in the synagogues? What caused him to have the ability to do that? Because before he was blind, before he had no one to lead him, before he couldn't have found his way to the synagogue if he had tried. 
But now a man obedient came alongside of him, discipled him, helped him regain his sight, and now Saul was preaching the gospel. And you know what's so amazing about the message of Paul? He is the Son of God, is what Paul was saying. And I'm using Saul and Paul interchangeably. He is the Son of God. You know what that would have meant to Jews? Jews understand that if a human has a baby, the baby that the human has is human. Amen? I've never seen a human have a baby that was another species. Well, in the same way, if God has a son, guess what the son is? God. So as Paul is proclaiming Jesus is the Son of God, you know what he's saying? Jesus is God. Now here's the issue with that among the Jews. That's blasphemy. That's something that a Jew would never say because they believe there's only one God and he's the God in heaven, a God who can't be seen. Saul at that moment had taken such a 180 degree turn by the impact of his salvation and the impact of his discipleship that he was now proclaiming the message that he previously understood to be pure blasphemy against God. That is the impact that Jesus had in his life. And that's the impact that the gospel, listen, the gospel still has the same impact today. Discipleship and teaching and coming alongside of people still has the same impact today. It changes lives. It transforms communities. It makes families healthier. It gives children better chances and better environments in home. When they grow up in a household of people who know Christ and have been discipled to know what to do in the Christian life. Hey, you ever wonder why all the great orphanages in the history of Western civilization have been Christian organizations? Because we're best equipped to love people. Because we've been designed to love people by a God who loves us. Hey, listen, when we follow his way, it makes everything better. It's not political. It's not about tax funding. It's not about programs. It's about people being transformed by the power of the gospel and being led and taught how to serve Jesus. And that's what we're called to do here at Pole Creek. As new people come in, and there's been a lot of new people come in, I praise God for that. We've got to be ready now. We, we don't want to just get people into our church just because we want big numbers. That's not what this is about. What we want people to come into our church for is so now that we can build relationships with them and we can lead them into a relationship with Jesus and we can disciple them and love on them in the growth process as their believers. So we see in verse 20 that he immediately began proclaiming the gospel. But you know what? What if they left him at that? What if they said, all right, he's been saved, he's been discipled, he's good to go. Let's go and leave him alone and let's do something else. Well, we go on to verse 23. What starts to happen after Saul commits to preaching the gospel? After many days had passed in verse 23 of Acts 9, the Jews conspired to kill him. Wow. Thanks a lot. I'm a new Christian. Next thing I know, people are wanting to kill me. Now, that would be discouraging, wouldn't you say? I thought I was doing the right thing. I thought I was doing a good thing. I thought people were going to celebrate this. And now that I've come to know the God of the universe and where I'm in a relationship with him, now people want to kill me. And not just any people, it's my own people, the people I grew up with, the Jews. I'd say that would have been very discouraging. Verse 26, we go on down. When he arrived in Jerusalem... So he's left Damascus. He's going back to Jerusalem. He's hoping for a welcome party among the Christians in Jerusalem. This is the reception he gets. When he arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him since they did not believe he was a disciple. 
Wow. And that's rough. You get thrusted into the faith in the one true God. I know this is right. I know this is best for me. I know that he does, he's worthy of praise and worship. I know that I was created to be in a relationship. This is great. But yet every which way he turns, not only the Jews who hate Jesus now hate him, but the Christians who he's brothers and sisters with won't accept him because of his past. Man, what kind of discouragement would he face? And that brings us to that third and final step, the impact of encouragement. So not only the impact of salvation that takes a person from a hell-bound sinner to a heaven-bound saint, but the impact of discipleship, which broadens the vision and knowledge and understanding of the believer so that they can fulfill the calling that God has in their life, but finally, the impact of encouragement, which means we come alongside of those who are struggling, come alongside of those who are our brothers and sisters, and we ag them on. We say, listen, I know it's hard. I know you're struggling right now. I know Satan is fighting you. I know your family's fighting you. I know your flesh and your temptations are fighting you. Don't give up. Don't quit. Hey, listen, this will pass. Hey, you're going to come out of this valley one day. And listen, it's all going to be okay, but don't quit now. And you know what? That's what Saul of Tarsus needed at this moment. Upon escaping the angry mob of Jews in Damascus, he arrives in Jerusalem only to be excluded and looked upon with distrust and skepticism. Let's look at verse 27 there. What took place here? Verse 27, Barnabas, and that's a sweet name, and you'll, you'll know why here in a minute. Barnabas however, took him and brought him in to the apostles and explained to them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road and that the Lord had talked to him and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. You know what Barnabas did? He said, hey, I'm going to encourage this guy. I know his testimony. I know he knows Jesus. Hey, you guys, quit excluding him. He's one of us now. There were no other issues after that, by the way. They, they, they received him as one of their own, as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what that did to, uh, to Paul that day? I can just imagine. After the discouragement, Barnabas came up to him and said, Come on, let's go. I, I got your back. It fired him up. It fired Saul up. Because here's what happened after that encounter. Let's go on down there and look at verse 28. Saul was coming and going with them in Jerusalem. In other words, he was hanging out with them. They had, they had accepted him now. Speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. It says in verse 29, He conversed and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers found out, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So at this point, they're still trying to kill him, but you know what? He's got a fellowship now of people who are supporting him and loving him and encouraging him. Let's go to verse 31 there. What was the result of all this? How did it all end up? It says, So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. What does that mean? They had a high attendance Sunday because they were trying to get as many people in the church as possible? No. More and more people were getting saved genuinely through the gospel of Jesus. More people were, be, were being added to the church, not just to get numbers, but lives were being changed. And it was all because God took Saul through a process. He understood, hey, you've got to be saved. Your name's got to be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You've got to 
know where you're going when you die, to have your sins forgiven, but didn't leave him there. He called Ananias, and Ananias come alongside of him. God, I pray that Brother Saul would receive his sight. And when he did, it says he went and preached that Jesus is the Son of God. And when the discouragement came against him, and the people tried to kill him, and his own people turned on him, and even the Christians turned on him, Barnabas came alongside of him and said, Hey, buddy, I've got your back. I'm going to go with you, and I'm going to vouch for you. You know what we need at Pole Creek today? Some Barnabases. Some people who are willing to come alongside their brothers and sisters and encourage them. Whenever things start getting really hard, you come alongside them and say, don't you quit fighting. Don't you quit. Sometimes we have to carry our brothers and sisters a little while. Sometimes they're so weak and they're so tired and they're so beat up, they just need somebody to come alongside of them and carry them for a little while until they can regain their strength. And then once they regain their strength, all right, go get them again. And that's exactly what happened to Saul. And it says that the church increased because the Christians were encouraging each other. You know what the name of Barnabas actually means? Son of encouragement, son of consolation. And that's exactly what he was about. So today, as we think about Impact Candler, as we think about reaching our community and those hurting, let's not forget the impact of salvation. Let's not forget the impact of discipleship, coming alongside of people and teaching them what it's like to be a Christian. And let's not forget the impact of encouragement and keeping that fire lit for them and loving them and supporting them. Let's pray.